This podcast is from RAND, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon and welcome to this media call. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. We are discussing the forthcoming second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am joined by Assistant Policy Researcher Christina Holenska, uh, James Black, who is Assistant Director of Defense and Security for RAND Europe, uh, Adjunct Senior Fellow Bill Courtney, and Senior Political Scientist Sam Cherup. Think and expect and hope that we will have uh, Policy Researcher Ann Daly joining, uh, but she is in transit. So as soon as her plane lands, we're expecting her to get on. I will lead a quick discussion to get us started, and then we'll open the floor to questions. I think uh, given this morning's news, it might be best to start with Alexei Naval- uh, Navalny in his passing in, in Russia. Bill, can you comment on that and what effect it might have, if any, on the progress of the war? Uh, thanks, Jeff. Just a couple of thoughts. Uh, One, we've already seen prominent members of Congress this morning express strong concerns. Uh, One referred to Putin as a mass murdering war criminal, uh, another as a murderous paranoid dictator. We can probably expect in Europe pretty strong reactions as well. Europeans pay very close attention to human rights issues uh, in Europe. And of course, the Germans have been uh, especially upset that Navalny was arrested Uh, but he flew from Germany uh, back to Russia. So this could have some impact. Europeans, of course, have gradually been strengthening their uh, support for uh, aiding Ukraine. Uh, The UK, uh, Germany just signed agreements, and France is uh, about to do that, I think, with Macron. Uh, So I think the combination of, in the US, the combination of the Navalny death and the revelation about uh, a potential nuclear anti-satellite weapon that uh, Russia may have. Uh, both of those could have some impact in the U.S. and probably also in Europe. I'll, I'll go to James. One of the things that Bill just touched on was was aid, and uh, that's the other big question of the day, which is who's going to provide how much aid and when. James, do you want to start on that? Yeah, as uh, uh, yeah, joining from from around Europe here, this is obviously something that we've been working uh, very closely with European governments looking at. Um, I mean, the big debates for the last six, twelve months in the UK, uh, in the UK and continental Europe, have been very much around. You know, is enough aid being given quickly enough in Europe? Um, and particularly looking at uh, the industrial ramp up and the efforts to try and increase production, not just of munitions, although that has been probably the most high profile aspect of it, but also of other technologies like uh, uh, FPV drones, for example. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion about the barriers that are faced. Um, It's not a simple, straightforward thing to overcome 20, 30 years of underinvestment in your defense industrial base uh, as, a, as a continent. And indeed, many of these issues are also affecting the US, which you know has, has had its own challenges in terms of getting production lines back open in defense industry and getting the workforce, many of whom, frankly, are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and, and have retired um, back and, and working and, and uh, producing things at the scale that's needed. So there's been a lot of focus on that and, and I suppose, more inward-looking uh, debates uh, within Europe. 
I think obviously where where we're at now with uh, obviously US kind of election season kicking off in earnest, clearly Europeans have begun to now ask whether those self-imposed targets around aid to Ukraine are actually sufficient to begin with. So it's not just are we meeting the targets we've given ourselves, but it's are those targets ambitious enough to begin with, you know, and, and does more need to be done to hedge against or potentially offset less reliable and uh, continuous supplies of aid from the US uh, just based on on what's happening on that side of the Atlantic. Um, so I think that's where a lot of uh, a lot of the conversation is now in Europe. We are seeing some some good initiatives. Those have been got done for a variety of fora. So NATO has been quite active um, in procuring uh, Patriot missiles collectively on behalf of a number of allies, for example, to replace what they've sent to Ukraine. Uh, there was another deal in the last couple of days that was announced to do more on through NATO and missiles and munitions. Um, and then we've seen a lot for the European Union, uh, including for its ASAP program, uh, which is an effort to boost artillery production and then share up to a million shells um, a year with with Ukraine. Uh, that's not been making as much progress as, as uh, on the share actual sharing of munitions as people would like. But reportedly, it has overcome some of the industrial bottlenecks in the last couple of months, and they're hoping to kind of reach their targets for production in the in, uh, in the short term future. In addition to those more centralised efforts, there's obviously been a whole load of, of national efforts and Germany and, and the UK have emerged as the major donors overall, but we have seen smaller countries give a lot. But finally, I'll just add that we're seeing lots of coalitions of the willing pop up. So in the last couple of days, the UK and, and Latvia, for example, um, just announced that they would be coordinating a European effort to produce thousands and thousands of, of small drones uh, to give to Ukraine, replacing the, the ones they're getting from China at the moment. Thanks, James. Uh, Christina, uh, would you like to weigh in? Hi, yeah. So coming back to Navalny question, I assume you haven't heard me at all, so I'll just start from no, the beginning. No, we, did, we, did, we didn't. Yeah. Well, it's undoubtedly a tra- tragedy. So condolences to his family, his friends. This is another victim of Putin's regime. He did have some controversial views, in particular on Crimea, and was never perceived by people uh, in Ukraine We do see the images of people in Russian cities, in particular in Moscow, bringing flowers to the monument, a very symbolic one, of the victims of the totalitarian regime. Given what is going on in Russia and how far regime is willing to go now to prosecute any critics for even smaller things, this is a brave thing to do. But it is also important not to let ourselves into too much of the wishful thinking. Russian opposition figures with charisma and with potential to unite the opposition have been murdered or as Karamurza in prison. A situation in Russia has historically been quite unpredictable, but it is unlikely that it will have any major consequences for the regime. Shifting back to the aid question, uh, Sam, can I get you to weigh in on the prospects there? I think uh, James addressed the European side of the equation quite extensively. Obviously, uh, the big unknown at this point is um, the fate of uh, the supplemental budgetary request in the U.S., um, which is at at this point the future of which is uncertain, let's put it that way, uh, given um, uh, where Congress is at. And I think, you know, we are at least increasingly seeing reports that this is having some effect on uh, the Ukrainian Armed Forces battlefield uh, effectiveness and their, particularly their uh, available ammunition. Um, and uh, I think that that is likely, you know, absent 
passage of, of the supplemental in the U.S., there's likely to be, over time, um, potentially more and more impact. Uh, that will be, I think, most acutely felt in terms of munitions, um, artillery, and uh, air defense. Um, more broadly, though, uh, the supplemental itself was mostly new contracts as opposed to drawing down existing stocks. So uh, the majority of it would not have been felt immediately, with the exception of munitions, presumably, which would come from existing stocks. Um, and I think that that points to a broader dynamic here, which is that uh, even if all the aid were in place, um, the uh, it is not a you know magic wand that could uh, make the Russian military go away, uh, and um, nor does it neutralize some of the advantages that Russia has demonstrated in terms of its own military production over the last. Uh, 18 months, which have um, surprised many, um, particularly its artillery production. So uh, it's a it's a difficult year that Ukraine is facing. Almost regardless, obviously, it'll be more difficult without the the supplemental. Um, but uh, even if it does pass, makes sense. Getting to the the battlefield, is it uh, fair to th- say that things are at a stalemate? I mean, that was the. Uh, term used by the former um, chief of defense in Ukraine, uh, recently former. Um, It's hard to know how to define that uh, exactly um, in the sense that there are, there is movement. Uh, Most of it is not in a good direction for Ukraine, um, but that movement is of a sort of tactical nature. Um, We're not seeing any sort of dramatic breakthroughs um, anywhere, but where the movement is happening, it's largely Russia making incremental advances. More broadly, though, we have not seen a significant shift of sort of operational level significance since, at this point, November of 2022. Um, So while there have been, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, the town of Bakhmut last year, for example, uh, you know, the town, the, the Donetsk city suburb, more or less of uh, industrial suburb of Divka, which seems likely to fall in the coming weeks. Um, but uh, these are n- not anywhere near as significant as the Kharkiv and Kherson um, counteroffenses in the fall of 2022. And since those, um, you know, the the big picture is relatively, uh, uh, it's not quite static, but at least that there has not been a dramatic shift. So there have not been dramatic shifts since then. Anyone else want to weigh in on this? Yeah, uh, let me uh, also mention about Crimea. You know, a year, year and a half ago, people thought Crimea would be the toughest nut to crack for uh, Ukrainians. Uh, what their strategy has evolved to be is essentially not to do a frontal invasion, but to deny Russia the ability to use Crimea as a place in which to project force uh, throughout the region. Uh, so the Ukrainians have been very innovative in their use of uncrewed surface uh, uh, vehicles, uh, maritime drones, as well as aerial drones, in sinking uh, a surprising number of Russian Black Sea uh, Fleet uh, ships. Uh, At the beginning, their first uh, kill was the Black Sea flagship uh, Moskva in, I think, April 2022. And they used their own Neptune missiles, anti-ship missiles, uh, to do that. 
but since then they've used uh, some of these uncrewed surface vehicles, USVs, uh, some uh, long distance even striking uh, warship in uh, Novorossiysk. Uh, so the Ukrainians have been pretty successful in that, primarily by using innovation. I'm sure they've used some Western technology uh, in that in terms of uh, electronics, uh, maybe swarming uh, technology, uh, swarming software, things like that. Uh, but that's been a, a remarkable success uh, thus far. And then now we see most recently Ukrainians being able to use long-distance aerial drones to strike uh, refineries and oil storage uh, facilities uh, in a number of places in Russia beyond Ukraine, uh, which will have some uh, marginal military impact, but they do serve the purpose uh, that Ukraine wants uh, to bring the war home to uh, regions of Russia that are not experiencing much involvement with uh, Ukrainian combat. Uh, great. Uh, James, I'm going to go to you. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I agree with what's been said. I, I was just going to quickly add that I, I think the concept of a stalemate can conjure up for a lot of people the idea of uh, kind of inactivity um, when actually what we are you know, still seeing is, as has been mentioned, a lot of um, tactical engagements along a very long, extensive uh, front line as it is now. And then a lot of activity uh, in other domains, such as at, at sea, as uh, Bill rightly mm-hmm. said. I think there is a uh, there's an interesting uh, dynamic here where both sides are in a period of um, uh, consolidation. You know, the warfare has manu- uh, become a, a more positional and attritional affair at, um, at this stage of the, the campaign. Um, that is reflected in the fact also that both sides have had more time to, to prepare their defences in depth, particularly the, the Russians managed to do their you know, preparations uh, for defensive much more competently than they had executed many of their offensive actions. Um, and obviously Ukraine is now, as we've discussed, in a situation where it is obviously um, not with all of the external aid that it would like to be, uh, and it is obviously having to uh, limit some of what it's doing, particularly in terms of uh, expending, uh, uh, burning through its artillery um, uh, rounds at the pace it would like. So in that period of consolidation, uh, there are still nonetheless lots of opportunities to um, achieve kind of a strategic advantage, uh, depending on how you approach that. And so we're, we're seeing this competition between two sides that are ultimately looking to kind of rebuild their forces, train up new troops, and obviously replenish uh, their stockpiles and their uh, munitions in particular, um, and then impose costs on each other in another way, whilst minimizing the adversary's ability to inflict costs in, in their own way. So Ukraine, we're seeing that with its its, its ways of uh, reaching out to the Russian homeland uh, and striking there, both for symbolic and more practical reasons. Um, we're also seeing it um, in, in Ukraine's efforts to try and reduce its, its own losses on the front line and be able to rotate troops off, the, uh, off um, obviously enable, enable them to recover, but also invest uh, in, in training. Uh, and I think this is where there's, there's some important expectations management to be done, um, because I think the first uh, the first kind of um, year of the, the, the invasion, um, as Sam mentioned, really conditioned, I think, a lot of international observers, including political leaders, but crucially voters and, and of course, the media, um, to expect kind of sweeping, you know, manoeuvre uh, warfare and, and huge offensive actions that would um, take back large swathes of the country in short short order. 
Um, and of course, the reality is the enemy gets the vote and, and the, the war we're currently facing is much more positional and attritional. That doesn't mean Ukraine is not doing you know, a, a remarkable job in fighting a, a much larger, ultimately better equipped um, and uh, larger economy uh, nation. So I think there's some important expectations management to be done there because, of course, Western donors of military aid are, are going to want to see some sort of visible return on that investment and, and communicating that. Uh, to your your general public and, and to the wider populations, um, that actually this aid is being used in an effective way is much easier to do. Of course, if uh, the lines on the map are moving dramatically uh, in the right direction, and it's harder to do when things are a bit more static. Let me bring in and on that point, and if you're able to join in, I'd be curious to hear your view about uh, what markers there might be of progress or not at this stage. I think the key point to remember is that. Uh, a stalemate is not uh, a, a final situation. It is not a permanent situation. Uh, wars historically go through phases of stalemate. This is a phase, and it is not uh, something that is... Obviously, you need to be concerned about uh, Ukraine's ability to maintain uh, its fighting positions given issues with personnel and given issues with munitions. Um, but that's why you're likely going to see Ukraine taking on an active defense uh, to be able to take advantage of the need to put Russia on the offense to sort of mitigate some of those issues related to personnel, uh, to give time to bring people off the front lines, to rotate forces, to do the training that's needed, um, and to conserve some of the munitions. I will just add to what some of the others have said that there is a very practical reason to try to strike uh, at Russian facilities beyond just the uh, psychological aspect of it is the need to try to force Russia to reposition some of its air defenses um, so that it is forcing Russia to reallocate forces and reallocate high-value, low-density assets uh, farther away from the battlefield uh, moving forward. Okay, thank you. I've just got a couple more questions, and I'd like to open it up to others on the call to ask questions. Uh, uh, One thing about the F-16s, I wonder, Christina, do you have any thoughts about what difference F-16s might make to the battlefield? Uh, When the first F-16 is spotted taking part in the war, it will once again be a big symbolic victory for Ukraine. This is a war of attrition, a stalemate, as we discussed, but it is also a war of morale and will. Ukraine has been asking for F-16s almost since day one. And getting them, especially now, uh, in this situation of uncertainty, uh, will mean a lot for Ukraine's morale. Um, At the same time, uh, Ukraine is in dire need of many other items that might have a more immediate effect on the battlefield. And I agree with my colleagues on that, like ammunition, drones, medical evacuation vehicles, medical kits, and other things like that. These relatively small things compared to F-16s in their entirety can be also no less of a game changer for Ukraine. Bill, you agree uh, it's a game changer? Uh, Could could be. It uh, probably is not going to be a complete game changer, but it could be a big help, Uh, partly because of the curvature of the Earth. F-16s can see uh, low-flying drones and missiles uh, farther away than uh, ground-based radar in some cases. Uh, so they can play a helpful role in air defense. Uh, but the pilots uh, will not be well-trained enough uh, for close air support for counteroffensive operations. Moreover, the air defenses that the Russians have are quite good, 
So a big surprise in this war has been that neither side has gained air superiority over a territory controlled by the others. At the beginning, people thought that Russia with a larger and more modern air force would gain air superiority over Ukrainian areas. But ground-based air defenses have proven themselves. So this is something that may have implications uh, far beyond um, just the Ukraine war. Just jumping in on that, one thing yeah. I think is important to note is um, they, they likely wouldn't make a significant impact this year because there's only small numbers trickling in this year. But in 2025, it could have a significant impact for a counteroffensive, particularly in support of breaching operations. That might get us to a question of negotiations and whether they should be undertaken now and and whether uh, uh, why not, not whether, but why Putin seems to have sent signals that uh, he seeks negotiations at this point. Uh, who, who would like to weigh in on this? I can start. Uh, and yes, Ukrainians are exhausted by the war. End of the war would be something then. Ukraine would definitely wish and want. There is no safe, safe spot anywhere in Ukraine to rest, to hide from the war. And now as the new mobilization is looming, this is a particularly acute issue. But let me restate the scenario that we are discussing here. So Ukraine and Russia would agree to ceasefire in some format and sit down at the negotiation table trying to find some common ground. Common ground is another whole another discussion. I uh, will not touch upon that. But talking just about the scenario, the exact same thing happened in the very recent history with Minsk agreement. Ukraine and Russia agreed to ceasefire, which was violated numerous times by Russian side. For Ukraine, the tragedy of Ilovaisk is still very fresh. Russia promised so-called green corridor to let the encircled troops out and started shooting at them, including the vehicles that were marked as medical with wounded soldiers in these vehicles. Several hundred Ukrainians were killed then. So if you look at Ukrainian discussions, including on negotiations, this trauma is still very evident and it leads to obvious lack of trust. With today's event and Navalny's understanding of the nature of this regime is even more obvious. A few months ago, Ukraine's foreign minister Kuleba posted on Twitter listing just the major instances when um, Russia lied to Ukraine or other countries' organizations. Yes, Russia keeps signaling and including in the recent interview that it wants negotiations. This is the message Russian domestic audience needs. It, its partners such as China and the global, global South countries, which might support Russia, but would definitely breathe more easily if this distant conflict somewhere uh, far away from them, but affecting them so much would finally end. Let's go to Sam and then, and then Bill and then Anne. So as far as the uh, um, reports of signals being sent and so on, um, it is perfectly plausible, as Christina suggests, that this might be a uh, you know glorified information operation. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that we're not going to know that until somebody tests the proposition. Uh, and you know you don't know that uh, somebody's bluffing unless you call their bluff. Uh, and at the moment, there's no interest in calling the bluff, so it's sort of a cost-free um, pose for Russia to take. Um, and uh, I think you know that 
that that is a, a, a challenge um, going forward. So not, it's not to say that I think it's necessarily genuine, but I just think it's fair to say that we won't know for sure until um, uh, someone uh, uh, takes them up on the uh, their uh, alleged interest. Um, the the trust issues that Christina identifies are uh, real. Um, I, I would note that they are quite similar to ones that exist in almost any um, war context, um, where in order to end a conflict, uh, two parties that have been killing each other need to actually come to an agreement. So uh, these are incredibly significant challenges that have often led to um, conflict protraction in the past. Uh, it's a credible commitment problem, as is referred to in political science. In other words, that you don't have any trust that the other side will comply with any agreement that ends the conflict. Um, at the moment, uh, there's no sign of uh, a table emerging, but I think that uh, the question becomes over time, when it's just a matter of when, in other words, uh, given that there's likely to be some sort of negotiated outcome, there's not going to be an, or let's put it this way, the, the prospect of an absolute military victory for either side where they don't have to negotiate any terms is extremely unlikely. Uh, so the question is when and under what conditions. The content of negotiations is important. Uh, there's a difference between a ceasefire in which the two sides negotiate uh, some of the odds and ends around just maintaining the ceasefire or a political settlement, which the two sides negotiate and resolve uh, a broad range of uh, political issues. Uh, some U.S. leaders have been saying, in a way, it's kind of misleading that all wars ended negotiations. Well, they don't all, and World War II certainly didn't. And Korea has a uh, ceasefire, but it's not a, a full political settlement. Uh, so the, the content uh, will be important. And as Sam correctly says, you know, when this will take place is a key issue. It's hard to know, uh, but it may have some impact uh, on uh, the content. James? Uh, yeah, I was just very quickly going to add that there's also, um, alongside this question about the, obviously the negotiations between the Ukrainians and, and Russians uh, of whatever form at whatever timing, there's a wider question of what uh, the wider kind of detent, defense and deterrence um, assurances that and security assurances that Ukraine receives from the West at large, EU, US or some coalition of the winning. Uh, that that's also a really important consideration here as to what can provide Ukraine with an assurance that uh, you, Russia will ultimately um, behave after any sort of negotiated settlement for all of the reasons that we've just we've heard. It's obviously hard for Ukrainians to to trust in that. Um, and so obviously part of that is not looking to the Russians to provide those assurances, but it's about looking to the wider international community to take steps that would um, provide, you know, the necessary kind of hard and soft power backing to Ukraine. And that that's obviously where you get into discussions about formal mechanisms like NATO or EU membership in time and, and the kind of uh, timelines and risks and so on associated with that. But it's also where you start thinking more about the role that, that the countries like the US can obviously play or, or bigger European countries like the UK, France, Germany, uh, and Poland uh, in, in reassuring Ukraine and ultimately helping deter um, 
deter Russia and incentivize the sort of um, peace that we would all want to see once this war is over. Thank you, James. How about sanctions? We haven't talked much about sanctions. Are they working? Uh, are, are, is aid from China and North Korea doing the trick that is uh, keeping Russia going? So sanctions are having a, a slower impact than people had hoped at the beginning, but that's the, the way of uh, sanctions. Uh, Russia's been able to adapt in, in some key respects. Uh, but over the longer term, uh, if you look at total factor productivity, the total productivity of the economy, uh, it is being sapped by sanctions, and that will continue. While the Russians are able to uh, steal or through diversions obtain some technology, they're not able to obtain it that way at large enough scale to benefit the entire uh, economy. For example, the auto industry in Russia is... uh, Production is down a lot, and they don't have a lot of the electronics that they used to get uh, from the West. Uh, so you, Russia will be suffering more. The The National Wealth Fund is down by over half uh, now. That's their rainy day fund, and that's uh, partly to uh, pump up the uh, war economy, uh, but also to overcome effects of sanctions. Uh, so they will have some impact, and I think the... Uh, uh, U.S. Department of Treasury and the Europeans are working to tighten the oil uh, price cap uh, sanction as well, so that could have more impact. Thank you, James. Yeah, I think if we're if we're asking if they're working, there's an immediate question as to kind of what does success look like? What are you trying to achieve, uh, and what's you know a realistic marker of that? And um, I mean, I agree with Bill that obviously these these increase the costs. They make they make life more difficult for the Russians. Um, uh, doesn't mean that they, you know, are going to have decisive impact on uh, changing Russian kind of foreign policy or military strategy. Uh, but then they're not necessarily, you know, intended to do so. There, are, if we look at history, there are pretty few uh, foreign policy crises, let alone outright wars, that have been solved purely by economic sanctions. They are merely one of the wider tools that we're, we're talking about. Um, what I think we should also consider, though, is not just the impact that they're having on the Russians, which obviously is the, the primary target audience for the sanctions, but also the, some of the impacts they're having uh, on kind of third parties. So if we look at Europe, for example, one of the, I suppose, the positives that has come from the sanctions is it has helped to wean a lot of European countries um, keep NATO allies included off of uh, kind of economic reliance, particularly in the energy sector, but in a variety of business sectors on Russia. Um, we've seen countries like the UK taking quite a lot of steps to um, kind of reverse the role that Russian money has played within uh, London and its financial sector and kind of, uh, you know, Londonograd. Uh, we've seen, obviously, Germany had a rather uh, more permanent solution uh, to its energy relationship with Russia imposed upon it by the um, sabotage of the Nord Stream uh, pipeline that was being built. Um, And we've seen other countries that, again, previously had a lot of business ties, obviously forced to pull them back. And now that we're a couple of years into that, obviously, those businesses have refocused on other markets. Now, that's important because that obviously reduces the uh, ability of Russia to more broadly exert influence within Europe um, because it isn't able to exert kind of economic, financial and 
um, uh, and energy blackmail in the way that perhaps it once was. That I think has some real long-term impacts. And and if you look at say the, you know the the, the market change in the German attitude towards its relationship with Russia, you know a big component of that is a element of economic decoupling. So I think that's also something just to bear in mind. It's not just the impacts on Russia; it's the impacts on the wider international community as well, particularly in Europe. I'll move to regime change in Russia. Uh, Bill, maybe Christina, either of you like to weigh in on the possibility of Russia regime change? Uh, Predictions are very difficult in Russia, as Yogi Berra said. Uh, It's fair to say that uh, uh, changes in Russia often come uh, suddenly or unpredictably. Um, So it's hard to know. Uh, For example, uh, no one expected a a proto- uh, rebellion from uh, Prigozhin folks uh, against the current power structure, and people didn't were surprised that Prigozhin rebellion was not uh, countered more strongly in its earlier phases as his troops were moving toward uh, Moscow. Um, with regard to the impact of regime change, when we look back at the Soviet war in Afghanistan, um, that war really came to close. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that there was a regime change in 1985 and a more liberalizing leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, came to power who wanted to reduce the uh, military burden uh, on the economy and have better relations with the West. And then there was uh, frustration with a stalemated uh, or losing war that lasted for a decade, took a lot of lives. So soldiers' mothers organized themselves uh, fairly actively in that period. So both of those factors played a role. It's possible uh, Russia's uh, war on Ukraine won't end until there's some kind of regime change in the future, but we really just have no capacity to predict that sort of thing. Uh, We have a question from Gofu Yang, if you'd like to join in. This is a reporter from The Voice America. I, I have one question here. Is it fair to say that Russia is now in a better position compared to what it was? Uh, a year ago. And uh, can we say it is also because of due to China's support? Thank you. Is that better position on the battlefield? Yeah, battlefield and also like economically in its war efforts. Uh, Economically, it's certainly not in a better position. There are greater strains in the Russian economy. And the Kremlin is quite disappointed that the, uh, quote, no limits, end quote, partnership with China has not uh, brought more economic uh, gain to Russia. You know, the large state banks in China have stayed away because they have more uh, at stake with uh, international and Western uh, banks. Uh, we don't see uh, China rushing to provide uh, lethal weapons at scale uh, to Russia. Uh, they're probably providing some electronics or other components, uh, but China has not turned out to be the arsenal of military industrial goods uh, for Russia that Russia might have hoped. Thank you. Anyone else want in on that one? Yeah, I would just add that um, I wholeheartedly agree with what Bill said. There has clearly been quite a number of limits to this no-limits partnership. China hasn't come out and uh, provided outright diplomatic support for Russia. They haven't provided direct uh, military support, although 
um, as mentioned, there there likely are some levels of support in terms of uh, providing input to uh, military manufacturing occurring in Russia. Very quickly jumping on this. I mean, I think um, I, I agree with what's been said. The if we, I suppose, if we look at this from, from China's perspective and we, we roll forward kind of what the different possible outcomes are of the conflict, um, we actually see, of, of course, it's the uncertainty at the moment over kind of US support and how long that's going to last uh, to Ukraine and at what level, what scale and, and what kind of consistency of delivery. Um, that That is perhaps a more decisive factor on uh, on the Ukrainian side than, you know, China on the, the Russian side. If there is a, you know, a, um, a Russian victory of any kind, be that a more spectacular one or just um, them achieving their ultimate political goals by freezing the conflict um, and then, uh, you know, rebuilding their forces over time using the much more mobilized industry that they do have. Um, and then, of course, in, in a number of years, posing a, a more direct threat to NATO, uh, this would have been ultimately a fairly resource efficient um, uh misadventure from a Chinese perspective in the sense that the Chinese have not exerted um they, they've not they've not exp- uh, experienced huge costs themselves here in, in terms of the support that they have provided to Russia but they would have witnessed uh you know initial period of western unity in favor of Ukraine then give way over time to more prevarication and uncertainty uh, and eventually some sort of Russian you know uh, success which would clearly benefit the, the Chinese directly um, in terms of pinning down a lot of um, uh, Europeans uh, in Europe, not in the Indo-Pacific, uh, obviously dividing uh, the kind of Western alliance and the credibility of US leadership uh, therein, and then obviously throwing into question um, what the response from the West might be to something similar in future around Taiwan or, or other things of more direct concern to China. So, um, yeah, I think China is certainly watching this conflict very, very uh, carefully. As it's, as people have said, it's it's managed to hold off from getting too involved, but nonetheless, it could stand to benefit quite significantly if this goes a particular way. Excellent, thanks, James. Just Bill. let me uh, mention a technology issue. Uh, in Economist magazine uh, a couple of months ago, Jonah Zaluzhny, who was then the the commander. Um, said that technology was going to be a key to the future. And that's uh, certainly correct, and it's correct in several interesting ways. One is the shortage of uh, soldiers. Um, That bite um, is probably going to be deeper in Ukraine than in Russia, although it appears to be an issue in both countries. And so the Ukrainians uh, going forward are likely to try to substitute uh, technology for people. Uh, so, for example, a, a huge drone uh, development uh, production effort is underway, and that's that's one way of of uh, doing that. Uh, another aspect is that the um, Ukrainians are now uh, looking more to the, uh, what James pointed out earlier about first-person view drones to substitute for a shortage of artillery shells. They are not perfect substitutes, uh, but they can be precision. They may not be able to carry quite as much explosive power as uh, a 155 artillery shell. Uh, but the Ukrainians are, in fact, you know, trying to adapt and turn to technology uh, to deal with this uh, shortage. So we'll probably see more creativity by Ukrainians uh, using technology over the next year. And that, te- that technology 
uh, innovation, if you will, will be driven in part by uh, uh, potential shortages of uh, Western support. Okay, I think we are going to wrap, unless anyone has any last questions or thoughts. Sure. I mean, all I'd want to say is, uh, you know, a key issue moving forward as uh, aid to Ukraine continues to stall out in, in the United States is the ability of uh, European and other nations to step in and fill that gap. And uh, at least for the time being, you are definitely seeing uh, a significant uptick in support from from European nations to Ukraine. Um, in addition to the EU aid deal uh, that passed last month, um, the recently completed Ramstein Group, the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, just had its 19th meeting. It's, uh, they say it's some 50 nations. I don't know exactly what that number means, but um, they've announced eight capability coalitions that are going to focus on Air Force, artillery, air defense, tank, maritime security, demining, drones, uh, and IT. So kind of getting to what, what Bill said in providing new technologies and capabilities uh, to help the Ukrainians. And then it's a recently completed defense ministerial where they had a NATO-Ukraine commission. Um, they announced uh, a NATO-Ukraine joint analysis training and education center in Poland. Um, and so this is going to get at, again, being able to train some of those units to uh, refit and retrain uh, Ukrainian units so that they are uh, prepared uh, if and when a, a future counteroffensive were to occur. Uh, again, likely not until 2025. Um, the UK-Ukraine bilateral security agreement uh, announced, uh, it, it looks at, a, it is a 10-year agreement. So again, this is the United Kingdom signaling long-term support for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine just uh, finalized an agreement with Germany. Um, uh, Schultz characterized the agreement as uh, Germany serving as a security guarantor. Uh, you know, there are, there are a few details on this, but this is, again, clearly uh, a move to demonstrate uh, European resolve, uh, even while the United States might be wavering slightly. And that also came with, I think, $1.2 billion in aid announced by Germany. And there's supposed to be a, a deal either today or tomorrow between Ukraine and France as well to provide additional guarantees and additional funding. So, um, so right now uh, you are seeing uh, just a lot of resolute support from uh, Europe in support of Ukraine. Uh, and it, for the time being, it's, uh, it is helping to fill that gap uh, politically and economically. You know, there's not perfect overlap between what Europe can provide immediately to Ukraine, which, as Christina mentioned, really is focused in on immediate needs like munitions. Um, it, Europe can't immediately fulfill that gap in the same way that the United States could, but I think it's an important demonstration of, of will and resolve uh, while the United States continues to the and being able to provide large aid packages to Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, James, as our RAND Europe representative, do you have any comment on European resolve? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Anne summed that up really well. And we mentioned earlier some of the, the kind of um, practical examples of, of other kind of uh, capability-focused coalitions that are winning in Europe that have emerged. So the UK and Latvia, uh, as I mentioned, with the deal a couple of days ago around building FPV drones. 
Um, I think I think what's also important beyond the material, uh, so the, the kit and the technology that, that people are sharing, um, is also continuing to invest in increasing both the scale and the sophistication of the training offer that is being provided by particularly Europeans, actually, um, but the US as well. Um, so to date, there's been you know tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have gone through. Um, there's, a, there's a few different uh, kind of training programs, one led by the UK. For example, that's been uh, quite large scale, um, with a number of other countries involved. Uh, but those those programs so far have focused largely on kind of basic soldiery, so getting getting Ukrainian uh, conscripts um, up to speed with you know how to how to use a rifle, how to you know um, move on the battlefield and, and operate at, at kind of low level engagements in a safe and effective way. And that's been really important, of course, in, in getting them the troops they need on the front line. But as we start talking about the kind of longer term here, and we're talking about a, a war that has become one that's more positional or traditional uh, and where it's going to take some um, some real hard graft to kind of force the breakthroughs that they want to see later in this year or, or next year. Um, we need to see more of the training kind of increase its level of ambition. So focusing more on allowing um, kind of training and exercising at larger unit sizes. So people are not, you know, working as a platoon, they're working as a company, a battalion, a brigade and, and, and so on. And then crucially also uh, providing better education and support to kind of the people in back in the headquarters in Ukraine. So the people who are doing the planning for these operations, which are hugely complex, uh, particularly when you start doing things like combined arms maneuver, bringing in F-16s, as we've already discussed, um, bringing air and, you know, air and land forces together in a congested um, space. All these sorts of things are very, very complicated or they're tricky, frankly, even for, you know, a lot of kind of NATO and um, staff officers to do. Um, and so we need to also give that sort of support to Ukraine. But those things take time. You can't, you know, improve people's knowledge and skills overnight. It, it's hard graft. Uh, but that is the sort of thing that will really pay off in the long term alongside, obviously, the kit, the equipment, the munitions and so on. Thank you, James. All right. But I think we should wrap up. Uh, I'd like to thank James and Anne, Christina, Sam, Bill. Appreciate you all joining. Much obliged. We will post an audio podcast of this call on Rand.org next week. And with that, we will conclude today's call and wish everyone a good day. Call with the Experts is a podcast from Rand. Visit Rand.org to learn more about these issues.